0: us to want your glory more than our own. Um, we know that's got to be a work from you, God, and we're just asking that, Lord. Um, awaken our souls to that. Um, Lord, I just ask that you would um, just go before Mom as she comes up and um, leads us, God. I just ask that you would be honored by um, the words she has to say, um, and that we would just really honor you today and in um, our groups, God. We love you in your name, we pray. Amen. Good morning, Um, I need to start with some thank yous, first of all ladies, thank you for choosing songs that are so fitting with our lesson, I appreciate that, Andrew, thank you for filling in on the guitar, Um, thank you Bridell uh, for bringing that, thank you for bringing that to our attention, and I'm um, just um, reminding us about um, Operation Charlotte. And also, lastly, I want to thank Donna for filling in for me last week and just uh, bringing her teaching and her insights to a difficult topic. Thank you. In 2004, Facebook, the most popular social networking service to date, was launched. Since then, social media has been the subject of all kinds of surveys and studies questioning its impact on our lives. One psychologist referred to it as, quote, a turbocharged precision instrument for social comparison unlike anything in human history. Comparing has always been a fundamental human impulse, but now it is on steroids. Experts warn that it's leading to depression and anxiety and stress. Time Magazine reported that 92% of American children will have an online presence before the age of two. Parents will post nearly 1,000 images of their children online before the child's fifth birthday. This is giving parenting a whole new dimension, now It is a viewer-rated performance. Pew Research did a study this year on teens and social media and found that 95% of teens now report they have a smartphone or access to one. What are they doing with their smartphones? They are working hard to share content that makes them seem interesting and liked by others. Being attractive to their peers is the main consideration in how young adults make online decisions. Studies are increasingly showing links between our overuse of social media and a variety of health issues such as anxiety, body image issues, with young girls judging their self-worth by how many Snapchat followers they have. Previous studies have suggested that young people who spend more than two hours a day on social networking sites are more likely to report psychological distress. And have the constant comparison promotes among other things a quote compare and despair attitude. These are just a few of the statistics and the findings but they lead to an important question for us this morning. What role should the opinions and thoughts of other people have on our lives and our decisions and our identity? At what point does it become destructive and harmful? How do you prepare your children for it or deal with it yourself? If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Proverbs 29? Proverbs 29 verse 25 29:25 25 says this The fear of man lays a snare but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Okay, this morning our topic is going to be the fear of man. And anytime you do a study on that particular topic, this is going to be the go to verse. And so we're going to spend some time on it this morning. I want to start today by defining what I mean by the expression the fear of man. So, point number one on your papers is this <clears throat> the fear of man is a biblical category of fear that covers a broad range of deep concern with what other men may think about you, say about you, or do to you. Okay, so it is basically a preoccupation with what man can do to you. Now, um, as with the other fears that we've talked about, there is such a thing as a healthy fear, a healthy consideration of what um, people think of you or they can do to you. So once again, we want to make a distinction. Let me give you an example. There are certain places I do not go at night alone by myself out of a healthy fear. My husband is very motivated motivated to cut his grass and rake his leaves out of a healthy consideration for his neighbors. So there is um, such a thing as that. But having said that, here's our next point. Point number two, in many ways the fear of man is when we care too much about what people think of us. Now I want you to go back to that first definition and circle the words Biblical category of fear. The expression fear of man, that's the way the Bible refers to it, okay? And it covers a very broad range of fears, but the fear of man is the terminology that the Bible uses, okay? It is not necessarily the way the world is describing. And I wanna go over some of the common ways that the world does that. And I have a box on your paper for this. Here's the first one. Number one, peer pressure. Peer pressure. You might remember that from high school or maybe you're raising teenagers, but um, peer pressure is just another name for what the Bible would refer to as the fear of man. You're concerned about what man is thinking of you and saying about you. All right, here's another one. Number two, you can write down people pleasing. Maybe you're afraid to say no to someone. Maybe you are um, just very uh, constantly concerned with, uh, you have a need for the approval of people, for that thumbs up, for that like on your Instagram. All right. Now, um, this is really just an adult version of peer pressure. Okay. All right. um, Number three, you can write down the words codependency. And number four, social anxiety. Now, those are two very popular terms that the secular world is using a lot these days. And in many ways, they are just expressions of what the Bible would call, to, would call the fear of man. All right, here's another one. Perfectionism. Are you a perfectionist? Because if you follow the breadcrumbs, you're going to see that it is generally rooted in an over-concern of what people think of you. right, here's another one, number six, hypocrisy. Do you act one way in front of the neighbor girls, but maybe a different way in front of your church friends? All right, hypocrisy can be the fruit of the fear of man. All right, and here's another one, number seven, insecurity. Are you continually insecure about the way you look or the way you do something? or maybe you feel like everybody's talking about you once you leave the room, or everybody's staring, about, staring at you when you enter a room. Okay, insecurity can take many, many forms, um, but at the root, it is the fear of man. Now, I want you to take at your li- look at your list. It's not intended to be exhaustive, okay? I am basically put it together so that we can understand that you are not likely to see the words insecure or social anxiety in your Bibles, and yet your Bibles are talking about those things. Uh, Those are expressions, your list is a a list of expressions that we Americans use, and yet they're basically variations of what the Bible refers to as the fear of man. Here's our next point. Number three, the fear of man can take many forms and is a major theme in the scriptures. Your homework had a couple examples of this. The author, he breaks down the fear of man into three categories. I have a place for this on your papers as well. When it comes to the fear of man, we fear, first of all, A, we fear physical harm. Let's say you're home alone or you're walking alone in a dark place and you you have a fear of what a person could do to you physically. That would be an example of the first one. B, we have the fear of exposure. We fear being seen or exposed. We don't want our flaws or our secrets made known. Okay, now this one goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve sin, and what do they do first? They want to cover themselves. They sew together fig leaves to cover their nakedness we do not, um, they didn't want to be exposed. All right, here's the last one, C, rejection. We fear rejection. We fear being unloved or unwanted or unaccepted by others. Now, you can put a star by this one because this one according to the author is the most common and it's also going to be the one that we spend the most time on this morning. I read an interesting article that had a quote from Sean Parker. He is uh, the founder of Napster and was the first president of Facebook. And he explained that their thought process was all about how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible. He said that to be able to do that, the user had to be given, and I quote, a little dopamine hit every once in a while, because someone liked or commented on a photo or a post. They, they knew that would keep you hooked. He goes on to say, you're exploiting a vulnerability in human psychology. The inventors, the creators, understood this consciously and we did it anyway. They understood that it is innate. We fear being rejected, and we want to be liked. We want to be affirmed. We want to be appreciated. We want people to notice the things that are going on in our lives. We want people to have a high opinion of us. And those inventors of Facebook very purposely tapped into all of that. Now, why might that be a problem? Well, take a look at Proverbs 29 again. 2925 says, The fear of man lays a snare. Those fears, those fears of what a man can do to you or what he can think about you or say about you, those preoccupations with being harmed, with being exposed, with being rejected, look what they do. They lay a snare. All right, now what does that mean? Okay, to lay a snare, I want you to think of setting a trap to catch a rodent or a small animal, because that's the picture here, okay? The fear of man, it acts like a trap. All right, now I want you to think about it. Let's pretend that you're a little bunny, and you're hopping all around, and you get your foot stuck in a trap. And so now you're stuck. Now you're captured. You're a slave to the trap. That's what the fear of man does to you. It enslaves. And so what do you do? Well, you begin making decisions like someone who's got their leg in a trap. You live like a prisoner to your fears. I wonder if any of you can relate to that. I wonder if you find yourselves enslaved To the opinions of others or what people think of you. Verse 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but now we're getting a contrast. Here's the contrast whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Okay, the contrast is the fear of man, which is destructive, it's controlling. That's what a good snare does, it overpowers you and takes hold of you. Now that's being contrasted to trusting in the Lord, which is safe, it's secure. Okay, that brings us to our next point. Number four, we can either fear man or trust in God. They cannot coexist. We are either going to be deeply concerned with the opinions of others, of man, and be controlled by that, Or we're going to trust in God, but they cannot coexist. When we are preoccupied with the opinions of people or their approval or rejection, we are putting people in the place of God in our lives. Here's our next point, number five. The fear of man is a snare because man is a false god. the person or the thing that is controlling you, that becomes your functional God. Ultimately, the fear of man puts people in the place of God in our lives and as such is a form of idolatry. Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 10? Matthew chapter 10, this is a chapter where we're going to see Jesus, he's sending out the 12 disciples He's telling them to go out and preach that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he's going to give them some instruction about that. So we're going to pick up at verse 26. Matthew chapter chapter 10, verse 26 says this. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, saying in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are more value. You are of more value than many sparrows. Okay. Okay. Jesus, he's telling the disciples they are about to go out preaching, and Jesus knows they're going to meet up with people, people that might mock them, reject them, resist them, maybe even kill them and try to harm them. Okay, and how are they to handle that fear? All right. look, here's our next point. <clears throat> Number six, <clears throat> we overcome our fear of man with a greater fear. We displace the lesser fear with a greater fear. Look at what he says. Don't fear those who kill the body. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We are dis- to displace the lesser fear with a greater fear. Over the summer, I had some out-of-town company and some things happened that I, that I wasn't planning on. And so it was affecting my schedule and my plans. And so I I began to just sense the anxiety creeping in, and I was trying to deal with that. And then I called my parents, and my dad answered. And he told me that my mom had been very sick. She had been in the hospital, and that she was not well, and that he was very concerned. I immediately had a new fear that had displaced the first one. I had a greater fear that overcame the smaller fear. Now that smaller first fear seemed so trivial and stupid and puny, and I found myself wondering why was I even worried about that? Now, I'm not to be anxious about either of those things. I just want to use that as an example of what we are to do. We are to take the smaller fear and overcome it with a greater fear. Now, what is that greater fear? What is it according to Jesus? Well, in very big letters, I want you to write the fear of God. You overcome the lesser fear with the greater fear. Jesus was telling them, yes, men can kill your body and do hurtful things but they are not sovereign they do not have a detailed knowledge of the world they are not providentially providing for the sparrows they're not keeping count of the hairs on your head and they most certainly cannot touch your soul we are to replace our fear of man or for anything for that matter with a greater fear the fear of the Lord Now what do we mean by that? What do we mean by the fear of God? Earlier this year, the outspoken and famous rapper, Kanye West, tweeted this. I don't subscribe the term and concept of God-fearing. That's dated mentality that was used to control people. We are in the future. If God is love, And love, it's the opposite of fear, then to fear God makes no sense. End quote. Maybe some of you have some similar questions about that. Why should we fear a God that supposedly loves us? How does God loving and our fearing, how does that work? How are we to make sense of that? Jerry Bridges explains that the fear of God is better described rather than defined. So we're going to try to do that this morning. This is a broad topic, but we're going to try to do some describing. Here's number seven on your paper. The fear of God is a foundational and constant theme of the Bible. Proverbs tells us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's foundational. It has to have first place. If we are to have any grasp on the things of God, it's going to begin with the fear of God. Okay? It's foundational and it's a major theme running through the Bible. All right, number eight. The Bible often links ungodly and sinful conduct with the lack of the fear of God. All right, when people don't fear God, when you see people snubbing their thumbing their noses at God. The Bible will often refer to them as people that do not fear God, okay? And then you also see the opposite, the righteous, those that are in a right standing with God, you're going to see them described as God-fearing. All right, so in, in fact, the fear of the Lord is another way of describing trusting God. All right, here's our next point. Number nine, to fear the Lord is another way to describe trusting the Lord. You can't separate trust in the Lord from fearing the Lord. Those two go together. Albert Martin put it this way. He said, If you do not know what the fear of God is in your heart and life, you do not know experientially the first thing about true biblical and saving religion. End quote. Ladies, when you hear celebrities or your friends saying that fearing God is outdated, you are listening to someone who does not know experientially the first thing about true biblical salvation and religion. True biblical and saving religion. Now, we probably need to describe what we mean by the word fear. Uh, When you read the word fear in the Bible, you basically have two meanings, and I have them both on your paper. It can mean terror and dread. It can mean reverential awe. Now, how do you know which of those meanings to use? Well, in very big letters, write the word context, because the context of the passage will determine the meaning. But that raises the question, well, then, should people love God or fear God? Should we be in terror or dread or reverential awe to God? Which is it? Is it all? Is it either or? Well, certainly the unbelievers should be filled with terror and dread because they are under the wrath of God. And they're under judgment. They're headed towards judgment and eternal salvation, separation. <clears throat> Excuse me. All right, what about believers? Should we fear God with a terror or dread? Well, probably uh, the easiest way to understand that is to make sure that we understand correctly what the word "awe" means. And I have this on your paper. From Webster, awe is an emotion variously combining dread, veneration, and wonder that is inspired by authority or by the sacred. I know personally I the, have the very bad habit of misusing the word awe or awesome. I use it to describe food. I use it when you know, one of my little grandkids does something cute and as great as they are, I probably should not be using that word to describe them, okay? Because true awe involves an element of dread and veneration and wonder. Our respect and reverence to God needs to have an element of awe. I want you to imagine that I am standing on a train track and I've got a speeding train coming towards me. It would be very foolish of me To have a casual respect toward that train. Okay, I should have a, um, I would need to have some terror and dread because the train is deserving of that. It's worthy of that. I need to have a proper view of the train. Now, I want to give you a good definition for the fear of God. Here's number 10 on your paper The fear of God is a reverential awe, a mixture of fear, veneration, wonder, and admiration, all directed toward God himself. That's from Jerry Bridges. It is an awe of his glory and his majesty and his power and his love. Now, this is important. One of the significant differences between the believer and the unbeliever when it comes to the fear and the dread of God, is that the unbeliever, is, his response is going to be to run and hide in fear, as it should be, to run from God. But the believer's response is going to be to run to God. Okay? You see the difference? Um, I want to give you an example. I've shared this story before. I call it my piano story. I was asked <clears throat> to fill in and play the piano. This is many years ago to a different church, <clears throat> to play the piano one year because our regular pianist was not going to be there. And I agreed. And I had one reason for agreeing. I wanted to impress people. I wanted them to hear me play and think, my, isn't she talented? Playing for the glory of God never crossed my mind. They told me all I needed to do was play two um, short Christmas carols. I said, no, I would be glad to play something for the offertory. And so I got busy looking for the showiest piece I could find. And then I began to practice. I can remember very clearly God convicting me Trying to get my attention, trying to deal with some heart matters, and I very clearly told him, no, I have a piano solo to practice for. On the day uh, came to play, I butchered two Christmas carols, but I thought that's okay because I'm about to dazzle them with the offertory. I had chosen a piano piece that would have my hands all over the keyboard. And so I put my hands down on the first six keys and they were all wrong. And then I hit another six keys and they were wrong and then another. And then I began to pray and cry out to God, please help me to which I heard something along the lines of, help you, I am causing this train wreck. And that's when I began to shake and tremble violently. My girlfriend said it looked like I was having seizures. And I, I'm sure it did, because I was very literally bouncing like a basketball on that, um, on that piano bench. For some reason, I kept playing. I don't know why, but I finished the song. And throughout the whole thing, I was very aware of the presence of God and my sin and his holiness. If you would have asked me that morning to sum it up in a word, I would have said, terrifying. It was terrifying. The verse, it is a terrifying thing to be in the hands of the Lord. Oh, that was hitting me right upside the head. I was thinking, now I know what that means. If you would have asked me for a second word, I would have said loving. Loving. Because as humiliating as it was, and it was, it, it knocked me flat. I knew I was being disciplined by my father my loving father and my desire was not to run from him my desire was to run to him and tell him i was sorry for being so stupid and self-centered i wanted to go to his feet and thank him for grace you see that's how the fear of light of god works in the life of a believer. Yes, there's fear. God is holy. God is terrifying. But because of the gospel, because of the gospel, I don't run away in fear and cower. I run to him. I run to him to marvel and to praise. I run to him. I want to throw myself at his feet and adore and admire him. In fact, the fear is going to propel me to worship and obedience. Here's our next point. Well, that was the first. I've never I've never done that before. Okay, am I back? Am I good? <clears throat> Here is our next point, number eleven. To fear the Lord is to have an exalted view of God and then respond to him properly. Turn with me, if you would, to Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah 32, verse 38. As I read, I want you to watch for the word fear. I also want you to watch for the word covenant. All right, this is a passage about the new covenant, right? We're in Jeremiah 32. We're going to start at verse 38. It says this, And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. Okay, for starters, did you see that the fear of God is good for your children? This passage is about the new covenant that God has made with believers. And as a part of that, as a part of that everlasting covenant with believers, he explains that he places his fear in your heart. He does it. He puts the basic foundation of the fear of God in your heart. If you're a believer, you have been (laughs) equipped with the right kind of fear of God. The Scottish preacher John Murray said this, if you're a believer, it is there, though it may only be a spark. That's God's part. Now do you have a part? Absolutely, turn with me to Deuteronomy 31. Deuteronomy 31, we're going to pick up with, at verse 11. This is Moses speaking. I want you to watch for the word fear. Deuteronomy 31, starting at verse 11. When all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, and be careful to do all the words of his law. And that their children, who have not known it, may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Okay, the people, they were to assemble... They didn't all have their own copies of the Bible. In fact, there might have been sojourners or new people in town. And so the people were to assemble and hear the word of God read to them so that they might hear and learn to fear the Lord. We can be taught. We can learn the fear of God. Listen, it is our job to fan the flame. God lights the fire. It's our job to fan that flame into a full raging fire. God lights it, we fan it. And it's good for your children. You need to teach them. We need to teach our children what this looks like. How do we do that? Here's our next point. It's from the author. He says this. The goal, number 12, the goal is to establish a daily tradition of growing in the knowledge of God. The goal is to know God. The goal is to have a big view of God and a small view of people. I have a quote from Albert Martin. It's on your paper. He writes this. One of the great problems in our day is that we have in great measure lost sight of those aspects of the character of God that are calculated to produce his fear. End quote. He's saying that we're not teaching and that we're not learning the things about God that produce fear and awe. Things like God's majesty and his holiness and his unrivaled sovereignty let me ask you are you pursuing pursuing for yourself are you teaching your children what god is like are you teaching them that he is the man upstairs the jesus take the wheel kind of god or that he is terrifying and majestic And magnificent. When you are listening to a sermon, or to a podcast, or reading a blog, are you following people that have a lofty view of God? I have an article that I found. It is entitled, A Day in the Life, Moms on Social Media. It's from 2013, so it's a little dated. But it's all about how savvy young moms are getting with social media. And it starts by claiming that 80% of young moms use social media regularly. Now that number is up to the 90s, into the 90s now. But this article gives a summary of what the typical young mom is doing on social media on a daily basis. I thought I would read some of it. 7 a.m., Hungry kids, wake up mom. While the coffee is percolating, she checks her Facebook news feed. She shares a tidbit that she learned from TV via Twitter and plays words with friends for two minutes while downing her cup of coffee. 8 a.m. to noon. In between school drop-off and errands or going to work, she she checks her Twitter feed, uses coupons from Facebook, pins a few recipes to Pinterest, and listens to music, via Spotify that her friends recommended. Noon to 3 p.m., lunchtime, means a few more minutes for mom to catch up on the latest news, blog posts, and texts. She might spend a few precious minutes alone to tweet, upload photo albums, or write some comments. Three to six, mom's racing around picking up kids going to appointments. She posts pictures from soccer practice to Instagram. She scrolls through her Pinterest boards to find an activity or two for cranky toddlers. And she entertains hungry kids with funny videos from YouTube. Six to eight, dinner time and bedtime, mom takes pictures of her finished dinner masterpiece to post on Facebook and quickly scrolls through her newsfeed while everyone is hungrily making their plates. She tweets one or two funny things the kids say and then herds the family upstairs for bedtime. Eight to 10. Once the kids are tucked in, it's me time and moms dive into social media. She builds a board or two on Pinterest, comments on friends status on Facebook. She goes through her blog roll, plays games on her smartphone, and checks on updates in LinkedIn, on LinkedIn. By the time mom heads to bed, she spent nearly three hours online and over six hours on her smartphone. That online time has increased to three and a half hours and the six hours on her smartphone did not include radio and TV. I wonder if any of you can relate to this. Now, this was from a secular website. And so this mom, in her life, people were very big. God is very small. In fact, there's no mention of of him. He's not a part of the equation. But what if it was a mom that was a believer in Jesus Christ? And she wanted to establish a daily tradition of growing in the knowledge of God. What if she wanted to get intentional and pursue making God big and people small? What might that look like? Well, let's revisit the schedule. Seven o'clock. Hungry kids wake up mom. While the coffee is percolating, she grabs her Bible. She pours her kids a bowl of Cheerios and tells them, while you're eating, we're going to learn about the seven days of creation. 8 a.m. to noon, in between school drop-off and errands, she grabs her notebook and Bible and spends some time reading and praying God's word. Noon to three, lunchtime means she makes the kids peanut butter sandwiches and once again, grabs her Bible. She announces, While you eat, we're going to study the Eighth Commandment and learn what God is like. Six to eight, dinner time and bedtime. Mom does not post a picture of her masterpiece meal or tweet funny things her kids are saying because she has turned off her cell phone and is instead guiding her family in conversation. At bedtime, instead of checking on her Facebook status, she brings the Bible out again. Or maybe she reads the child a story about missionaries or someone else that feared the Lord. Or maybe she reads her child a story about puppies or kittens or birds and talks about how glorious God is in creating them or providing for them. Or maybe she asks, Do you remember what day of creation God created them on? Instead of centering her day around the thoughts and ideas and approval of man, she does everything she can to put God in the center. Now, some of you may be thinking, are you seriously suggesting That I read my Bible that much. I'm suggesting that you meditate on it night and day. And that you replace the thoughts of man with the thoughts and plans of God. You might be thinking, are you saying that I can never play words with friends? or post something on Pinterest or Instagram. No, I am not saying that. I'm saying we are to learn the fear of God and to get into the habit of treating God as big and people as small. Yes, we love people. We don't treat them as unimportant or invisible, but in their rightly place. I want to close uh, with a comment, it's a quote from our author. Here's number 13. The problem is clear. People are too big in our lives, and God is too small. Would you pray with me? Father, this is, this is a hard lesson because we are we just innately want the approval of people and what they think of us and how they refer to us is important in our lives. And so I pray that you will help us. I pray that you'll intervene, intervene and and help us to put you in the right place. I pray that you will help us to make you big in our lives, to make you big in in the eyes of our children, We pray and ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Ladies, I have one announcement, and that is we have two weeks off. Okay, we have two weeks off. We have one last lesson. I believe it's November 13th. Is that the right day, the 13th? Okay, now we're not going to do do chapter 6 on your own, but come back on the 13th ready to do that last lesson. And and be sure to come back. We've got one last lesson we'll do together. Lesson number 7. November 13th.